what is Bob Dylan? Thank you for coming back to these broadcasts. Hopefully you've listened to the first five episodes already. And if so, you'll know that I always try to start out with that question. What is Bob Dylan? And at first, maybe it seems like a simple question. But the more we get into it, the harder it becomes in some ways to answer with anything definitive or final. And maybe the further we go along the path of trying to answer the question, the deeper the forest gets. I'd like you to consider that maybe a deep and dark forest can be a wonderful place to be. Before we get rolling, I'd like to alert you to the website for this series, which can be found at abobdylanprimer.com. That's abobdylanprimer.com. Please check it out, and thank you. In this episode, we're going to take a look at a very interesting period of Dylan's career. Of course, they're all pretty interesting, but this is a time when Dylan who had been completely in sync with or ahead of the culture for the first five years of his career, now began to diverge from the cutting edge. 1968 would prove to be the most tumultuous year in modern American history. And yet, as the year began, Dylan released John Wesley Harding, a quiet, introspective, and mysterious collection of short songs tinged with religious imagery. And then... Dylan went quiet for a while. This is a Bob Dylan Primer, Episode 6, Country Pie. As 1967 drew to a close, a couple of big things happened in Bob Dylan's world. He finished up and released a very different sounding album, John Wesley Harding, and Dylan's first and only great idol, the Titanic Woody Guthrie, passed away after a long illness. In January of 1968, Dylan joined a group of other musicians at Carnegie Hall for two tribute concerts to Woody. Dylan was backed by the band, but this was a very different sound than the 1966 tour. It was a driving country rock sound with Dylan pushing his vocals to the limit. The concert was a big success locally, but it didn't have much impact outside of New York, left wing and folky circles. And then Dylan stopped performing or recording for the rest of the year. The rest of that incredible year, 1968, that saw so much else happening around the world. 1968 was the year where the 60s broke the U.S. of A. wide open. The battle lines had never before been so clearly drawn, highlighted by the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, and the bitter bitter 1968 presidential election won by Richard Nixon, but just barely. And it's hard to battle with the notion that Dylan's earlier music and artistic stance was one of the fuses that burned down to the powder keg of that year. But you didn't find Dylan marching the streets or face-to-face with any police barricades in 1968. He stayed home in Woodstock, New York, and learned to paint. A neighbor of Dylan's up there was a pretty established modern painter, a man named Bruce Dorfman. And according to his account, Dylan stopped by his studio several days a week during that year and learned the basics of getting paint onto canvas. Dylan loved to paint and has continued to paint up to the present day. For Dylan's 27th birthday that May, 
Sarah bought Dylan a fancy box of paints that he put to good use. It's interesting that Dylan was doing what he was doing as he turned 27, for that number is the age that brought down some of our most talented, tortured, and beloved musicians. Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, Brian Jones, Amy Winehouse, Kurt Cobain, even the prototypical bluesman Robert Johnson. All of these blessed souls died at 27, and all in great part due to their own excesses. Maybe Dylan, in his oddly infinite and inscrutable wisdom, had some sense that he needed to change course. So he painted every day and hung out with his kids. Another event that happened in Dylan's private life in 1968 was the death of his father, Abe. What's crazy about this day, even crazier than the deep sadness of losing your father, is that Dylan must have woken up on the morning of June 5th, 1968, and heard the news that Bobby Kennedy had been shot in Los Angeles just after midnight the night before. Kennedy was clinging to life and not declared dead until the following day. But then, sometime later that June 5th, Dylan got a phone call from Minnesota saying his father had died of a sudden heart attack at the still very young age of 56. A very strange confluence of events, pointing up the divergence of Dylan's life at that moment from what was happening in the streets. And Sarah was pregnant again, with who would become the couple's third child together. That child was born on July 30th, 1968, and Dylan and Sarah named the baby boy Samuel Abram after Dylan's father. The couple now had four young children at home, Maria, Jesse, Anna, and Sam. Jacob would be born the following year. Dylan stayed busy, but made no new recordings and played no concerts for the rest of 68 and into the early part of 1969. As the year of 1969 started, Dylan was approached about writing a song for a new movie that was in production, starring Dustin Hoffman and John Voight, and called Midnight Cowboy. In response, Dylan wrote the song, Lay, Lady, Lay, and he went down to Nashville in February 1969 to record the song, along with a few other tunes for a possible new album. Lay, Lady, Lay was finished too late to make the soundtrack for Midnight Cowboy, but Dylan used the studio time as an opportunity to record a new album. In a handful of sessions that February, again with Charlie McCoy and Kenny Buttry back from the Blonde on Blonde and John Wesley Harding sessions, and a group of other brilliant Nashville studio players, Dylan recorded a handful of new songs, including a full day's session with Johnny Cash playing old country standards and a few Dylan covers. And then, in April 69, the album was released and called Nashville Skyline. And while John Wesley Harding may have been a shock to fans, Nashville Skyline was a honey-coated, chicken-fried depth charge of sweet-sounding country music. To most Dylan fans in 1969, country music was the devil's music, the devil being the conservative majority that still ran things in America. Even worse, country music was identified as redneck, read, racist music. That may not have been true or correct, but it was the perception of a lot of young people in America at that moment. And this perception was reinforced by the cover photo of the album, which showed a tight close-up of Dylan's smiling face, 
holding a shiny guitar and tipping his hat while looking down at the camera, wearing what sure is shooting appears to be a shit-eating grin. In spite of all this, the album became Dylan's bestseller ever, anchored by the hit single Lay Lady Lay, which reached number seven on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. On that song, have to give another shout out to the late, great drummer Kenny Buttry for the insanely creative beat he taps out on bongos that kicks the song off and the drumming he does throughout that really holds the song together. It's a beautiful song with beautiful accompaniment, and it sounded nothing like anything Dylan had ever done before. Even today, 50 years later, people still get hung up on the voice Dylan used for Nashville Skyline. What I think they're missing is how evocative and beautiful his voice is, and how it shows Dylan's amazing control of his vocal instrument, in spite of the fact that many people still think he sounds like a dog with his legs stuck in barbed wire, as someone said of him back in 1964. So, Nashville Skyline, Bob Dylan's new album, kicks off with a slightly perverse choice of song. It's a duet between Dylan and Johnny Cash, singing Dylan's early song, Girl from the North Country. And it's almost a rehearsal. They both flub the lyrics a little and are hunting around for the chords in places. But the version is so goddamn beautiful, I don't even know what to say. Given everything Dylan's written and recorded up to that point, it's so different and unexpected to hear this sweet country version of the song. But the feeling you get listening to it is just incredible. And again, the fact that Dylan could pull off these choices in the face of a lot of criticism and flack is somehow impressive to me. After the opening track, Girl from the North Country, the next song on the album is called Nashville Skyline Rag, and it's an instrumental. Bob Dylan did an instrumental, kind of surprising. It's a full-on country rag with steel guitar and guitar picking and country piano, and it's just a couple of minutes long, and it ends with a flourish, and then the next song is a straightforward country bluesy love song called To Be Alone With You. And it makes you start to wonder, what's going on with Bob Dylan? He started off his new record with a sloppy yet beautiful version of one of his old songs, and then he goes into an instrumental that's fun but not too challenging, And the entire album is less than 30 minutes long, and it's mostly fairly lightweight country tunes sung with Dylan's very surprising country voice. The heaviest songs on the record are Lay Lady Lay and two beautiful heartbreak ballads called I Threw It All Away and Tell Me That It Isn't True. And that's it. There's even a song on Nashville Skyline called Country Pie, where the chorus ends with Oh Me Oh My, Love That Country Pie. And when you listen to it today, it's cool. It's country Bob, and it sounds cool. It sounds good, and it's got a good groove, and it's kind of a cool little tune. But back in 1969, as the country was seeming to fall apart and the Vietnam War was raging, to have Dylan come out with a record where he was singing Oh Me Oh My, Love That Country Pie was just mind-bending. It was mind-bending, mind-boggling, and mind-I-don't-know-what. It was really something, and people didn't know what to make of it. Critics were aghast, and they ripped the album apart. And many so-called Dylan fanatics were horrified. But I think most music fans just weren't sure how to process Nashville Skyline, and there was too much other stuff happening in the country to get too crazed about Dylan going country. Like I said... 
Nashville Skyline was a big seller, partly because of Lay Lady Lay, but also people just bought it because it was a new album by Bob Dylan, and Dylan had established himself as one of the pillars of rock and popular music. And so when he had a new album, you bought it. Again, we're talking about the 60s, where there weren't thousands and thousands and thousands of offerings being hurled at you every second. There were several hundred mainstream rock records released in a year, and if you were a rock fan, you bought 15 to 20 of them or more, and you were certainly going to include a new album by Bob Dylan. Over time, people have really come to love the record, Nashville Skyline. The musicianship is fantastic, the singing is gorgeous, and the songs are terrific, even if they're not all that substantial. And Lay Lady Lay is a true, forever classic song. Talking about 1969, it's instructive to maybe look at a song, not by Dylan, that was called 1969, and recorded in 1969, and released in 1969, by Iggy Pop and the Stooges. And it's an indication of what one of the cutting edges of rock and roll was at that moment, and how far Dylan was from that in so many respects. That's not to say Dylan had stopped being creative, but no artist can stay in the vanguard for very long, especially in the superheated cauldron of cultural change that was the 1960s. And so, whereas in 1966, Dylan was making by far the most adventurous pop music out there, Three years later, he was recording Nashville Skyline, and Iggy Pop and the Stooges were creating this minimalist, riff-based punk rock, basically, that had a kind of raw power, wink wink, that really pointed to the future, or one of the futures. And what Dylan did, instead of trying to remain as the future, was that he intuitively figured out that true personal expression is different from being in the artistic and or cultural vanguard, and that's where he focused his creative energies. And although you could say Dylan might have been hopping onto bandwagons here or there during his career or paying attention to trends at various times in his career, he's really never done that to any significant extent. What he was trying to do instead was follow his heart, for lack of a better phrase. Nashville Skyline was released in April of 1969 and it sold extremely well. And that same month, Dylan went back into the studio, again in Nashville, and started recording new songs. And for the rest of the year, Dylan pretty much stayed out of the news, except for one weekend at the end of August, when he flew to England to headline a rock festival on the Isle of Wight. And the story of Dylan going to the UK to play this concert is an amusing little side road, which we won't go too far down right now, but the story is that Dylan was of course, invited to Woodstock to play that little gathering they had there, practically in Dylan's backyard, after all. But Dylan declined. And apparently one of the main raison d'etre for Woodstock to have even come into existence was that the promoters were trying to lure Dylan out of his semi-retirement. But Dylan told them no, even though his band, the band, accepted and played a set there at Woodstock, a set, by the way, they were not too happy about and for which they denied permission to use in the Woodstock movie or soundtrack album. Anyway, the day that Woodstock started, August 15, 1969, Dylan was getting on board the Queen Elizabeth II ocean liner to cross the pond for England. As Dylan and his family were boarding the ship, little Jesse Dylan hit his head and had to go to the hospital. 
So Dylan almost didn't make the trip, but about a week later he flew over to perform for a crowd of nearly 200,000 people. In the crowd, in the VIP section, were Ringo Starr, John Lennon, and Yoko, and George Harrison. Also, Eric Clapton and Keith Richards, along with a bunch of other rock stars. And Dylan played an hour-long set, backed by his old cronies, the band. And Dylan did a couple of solo acoustic numbers as well, singing in the sweetest tenor voice imaginable. And after the concert, Dylan flew back to the States and spent the rest of 1969 hanging out with his family and recording a few more tracks for what was to become his next album. For this record, Dylan works with the same producer and many of the same musicians who did Blonde on Blonde, John Wesley Harding, and Nashville Skyline. And he starts recording a very idiosyncratic collection of songs, mostly covers of old songs. Some real old, like sea shanties and murder songs and traditional folk songs, and a couple of more recent covers. He covers a Gordon Lightfoot song called Early Morning Rain, and he does a version of Paul Simon's The Boxer, just a few years after Simon and Garfunkel recorded it. These songs are then released in June 1970 in a double album set called Self Portrait, with very fancy and elaborate packaging, nice paper stock for the cover, no writing on the front cover, just a painting by Dylan, which could be a self-portrait, kind of a primitive painting of a face. And if you think Nashville skyline confounded people with its country vibe, self-portrait completely flabbergasted people. One of the preeminent rock critics in America at the time, Grell Marcus, the opening line of his review of self-portrait in Rolling Stone magazine was, what is this shit? People just could not wrap their minds around the record, and it's not that surprising. It was really a mystery. The double album only has five new Dylan originals, and of those, two are instrumentals. The rest are covers, and there are also three live tracks from the Isle of Wight concert. And I'll put forth that they might be the three weakest tracks from that concert. So go figure that. The sequencing of the album is also really peculiar. There are two versions of a song called Little Sadie and two versions of a song called Alberta. Dylan even covers the old standard Blue Moon with full string accompaniment. It's a mixed bag. It probably should have been called Mixed Bag instead of Self-Portrait because at least when it was released, it didn't shed any light on who Dylan was or what he was thinking. Although in hindsight, of course, those things become clearer. And today, like other Dylan incarnations that age well over time, Self-portrait sounds absolutely great. Some people thought Dylan was staging an elaborate put-on, some kind of joke, or that he was putting out crap to satisfy the record company and deny his manager, Albert Grossman, royalties because they'd had a difference of opinion or a parting of the ways. But those notions are belied by the commitment that Dylan demonstrates in the vocals on Self-Portrait. The way he modulates his voice and accentuates certain phrases, and the way he's singing in a forceful but controlled and melodic way. It's just not somebody who's phoning it in. He's totally committing to these tunes. This weird collection of sea shanties and moonshining songs and murder ballads, he's 100% committed as he's singing the songs. So I don't feel like these songs were a joke to Dylan. I think he was trying to express himself the best way he knew. This was, for him, 
the most potent form of expression that he could put out at that moment. Going out on a limb here, but I think one of the things going on with self-portrait and Nashville Skyline and John Wesley Harding as well to some extent is that Dylan was trying to remove himself from his music, to remove his personality and his persona. I think that may have been both a survival and protective mechanism and also a very crafty way of finding new ways to tap into his muse. Thank you for listening. And if you'd like to hear some of the music referenced, please check out the public playlists I created on Spotify under the name A Bob Dylan Primer. Also, please visit the website at abobdylanprimer.com to find cool supporting content about Dylan, including links to some amazing stuff. And thank you very much.